You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Nathan Ballingrude writes short stories and novels. His story, The Monsters of Heaven, won the 2007 Shirley Jackson Award for Best Short Story. His new collection of stories from Small Bear Press is North American Lake Monsters. Thank you for speaking with me, Nathan. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I have to say, these stories are so amazing. It, it just blows me away that your ability to combine really intense character portraits of achingly real people with just these dollops of the supernatural that take it up to a level of intensity that makes the story somewhat, I mean, you it, they require a rest time after reading each story. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's, well, thanks. Um, One of the things I think that, that interests me so much about your work is your ability to craft these really great and, and realistic characters who are always in the worst of circumstances. I'd like you to just talk about uh, creating some of these characters. Uh, the the woman in You Go Where It Takes You, I, I mean, she's just at such loose ends, and, and the way you reveal her her bits of character are really great. It's, it's scary just to meet your people. <laughs> Well, thank you. When I started writing most of these stories, it was, uh, you know, the intention was to just write about people who didn't seem like they were heroes in in life or in your typical story, you know, the kinds of people who are background people. And it's even especially that first story, you know, she meets this guy, and this guy has, you know, uh, a bunch of boxes of, of basically other identities in his car. And I was thinking, you know, when I first had the idea, I thought, you know, that's the story that most people would uh, would expect to be reading, and I wanted to write about the kinds of characters who aren't part of those main, those the, you know, the, the primary narrative. They're 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 the side characters. There's just somebody that this this protagonist in a normal fantasy story kind of brushes up against, and how does that affect her life? And with most of the characters in, in those stories, it was it was kind of the same impulse. It was just it was just you know uh, how do people who are just kind of brushed by the fantastic or by some large event, how are their lives changed? And it was important to me, too, that they were, you know, not always very pleasant. I don't, I don't think that they're all terribly unpleasant, although some of them are, but I think, uh, you know, I think of myself, and I'm, I'm, I'm a very morally conflicted person many times, and, uh, and so I wanted to represent that in, uh, in those characters, too. One of the things you say about the character, the woman in the first story, I really liked. <clears throat> she thinks of herself; her life was a desperate construct, and I think that that's the place that many of us find ourselves in, and that uh, is a place that fiction doesn't often find its characters in. And I really like the way that you've created. Uh, these people, and one of the things you describe your stories is, I mean, these stories do not strike me as fantasy stories in any sense of the way. They are grittily realistic, and when we encounter some notion of the fantastic in them, it seems equally realistic, and you always dial it back just enough so that we don't question. And I'd like you to just talk about striking that balance between the characters who are 
like people we might see in the grocery store and, and as you say, not think of twice. And the supernatural aspects or the fantastic aspects that, you know, flash through their lives for long enough to leave them, you know, maybe alive. Yeah. I think that comes from comes from my habits as a reader, you know, I and I I, I read you know, I love the uh, the fantastic in what I read, and uh, but I also am really moved, in fact, probably more like viscerally moved by uh, by realist fiction. Um, Richard Ford is uh, somebody who gets me who gets me every time I read him. Um, uh, Alice Munro, of course, and uh, you know, writers of short stories who write about those kinds of characters. Carver is a favorite too. Those are stories that when I read them, when I put them down, I'm usually most I'm most uh, affected by. And that doesn't happen quite as much when the fantastic is is a part of the story that I'm reading. That 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 satisfies a completely different sort of itch. And so when I when I when I write that, like especially with these stories, I like to uh, you know I like to to, uh, to to capture some influence from both of them. I have to say, you totally succeed. I mean, and, and so I, I, I let's just talk about the first story. You you go where it takes you. You have you have this woman. She's in a really bad place. And um, she meets a, a, a fellow who is more than he seems to be and maybe uh, not, not such a good person. And, and I'd like you to just talk about crafting. Does the notion of the fantastic come after the characters, out of the characters? Or does it just uh, – do you just um, at some point say, okay, uh, there's something else that needs to happen in this story? The answer is different for different stories, but for that one, uh, the character was there first. I was living in New Orleans at the time, and I had been down through Port Fouchon a couple times when I was working offshore. You know, I'd go down there to, I go through there to uh, to get on a boat. And in that in that case, I you know, it was just I was just writing this uh, this woman in this place. The first paragraph kind of came by itself, and uh, and as I had them start talking to each other, then. Then the, the the fantastic idea sort of sort of stumbled along, uh, kind of kind of organically. But at first it was just uh, at first it was just the character, and in fact most of the time it's it's the character first. It's this person that I want to that I want to figure out. It's somebody who's I knew she was I knew what she was going to do when I started that story, and what I wanted was to understand her. You know, I wanted to find a place. And with a lot of stories too, I like to, you know, a challenge I like to set myself is to find someone who's done something that we kind of all agree is morally reprehensible, but figure out how that could come to be. You know, not necessarily justify it, and certainly not in her case justify it, but to to kind of get a glimpse into the sort of situation where that might seem like to her a reasonable response. It, that's one of the things I think too that with, your stories are so economic. I mean. They're just scraped bare down to the bone. There's no frills in these stories. They're relatively short, and they're very intense for their length. So I, when you write these stories, do they start out longer, and then do you scrape them back, or do they just no. uh, squeeze <laughs> out a hard, bit by bit? I, I have a hard time writing longer stories, actually. They just, they, they're, they're very naturally kind of condensed. You know, my dad was a journalist. I, uh, I studied journalism a little bit in school, and so probably that kind of aesthetic is kind of hardwired into me, you know, the, the aesthetic of, of being concise and, and not wasting any space. And, you know, a lot of the writers that I really enjoy also write that way. You know, Ford again, Carver, Hemingway. It's just something that I respond to. When I'm writing a short story, it's hard for me to get past that 10,000-word mark. It's just, uh, that seems really long to me. 
the the story Wild Acre is really good because I think that's a uh, gives us a, a great you know setup with these characters kind of out in the wild at the edge of you know civilization and we meet that a lot. I mean our suburbs are pushing out further and further towards the edge and it's so easy to get out there where things can happen and I love the the sense of this you know an encounter that results in, you know, a classic case of PTSD. I think that's a really fascinating uh, way to to uh, arc for the story. That one is a, that one I, I like, and that one gets, of all, of all stories in the book, that one gets the most stratified response. Uh, people seem to really dig it, or they really, really dislike the way it ends. Yeah, the whole point of that story is the, is is that it doesn't have the ending that, that people expect, and I can you know especially with the, you know with the way the economy's kind of collapsed or at least had collapsed for a while around us, the this feeling of being ineffectual, of being unequal to the task of just of just taking care of your family or even yourself was kind of uh, I know I was feeling it, and I know a lot of people that I know were feeling, it. and um, it affected affected a lot of us very directly. Um, my brother and I actually had a house painting business very very briefly and uh and it was scuttled by that whole uh the housing collapse and that's where that story came out of you know i just really liked the idea of having again this kind of just this brush with the supernatural the supernatural isn't even the point of the story but it's this it's just kind of it, it was a great i thought metaphor for the sense of uh this frustration that cannot be addressed that the protagonist is feeling and uh and the whole point was that the you know the answer never comes back to him. He doesn't ever get to confront that threat. It's just it happened. It's gone, and he's got to deal with it for the rest of his life. And uh, and I think that I mean, that certainly played part in my life many times. And I think it does for most of us. Well, that I mean, what you just described is is exactly what I mean. The way most of us have to deal with economic forces. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, it happens to you. You can scream at it it never answers back it's beyond your control and often beyond your understanding and i think that the way you combine those two is is crafty and and, and intense and it's a great uh example of the using the fantastic to externalize something but you do it in a way that's very subtle both extremely subtle but also sinewy and muscularly powerful i mean it's just like a, these stories are all gut punches one after another <laughs> i have a hard time selling that story really because it, because it doesn't well you know it's it, it it sets itself up as a werewolf story mm-hmm. but then doesn't doesn't fulfill the promise that a typical werewolf story makes it goes somewhere else entirely and and i think a lot of people and some readers who have gotten back to me are I found that frustrating, and um, I thought and, that was uh, a kind and, of. You know, I, was, I, I, I get what they're saying. I, mean, I, I, I understand why that one might be frustrating. It's it's frustrating for the protagonist too. So, well, as I say, I think that's kind of the point. But yeah. uh, uh, when we talk, another story that I really loved was uh, um, SS. And for me, that story just captures a certain kind of uh, feeling of these family homes where everything's like really closed in and people are living behind really dense curtains. And there's this very creepy kind of feel to it. And uh, I, this reminds me of some, in some ways of some of the, the best of uh, the, the Dennis Etchison stories, short stories. Oh, thank you. 
so so uh, I'd like you to just talk about creating this this really weird the the there's a norm somewhat normal relationship and there's a really really weird one and, and I'd like you to just talk about uh, juxtaposing those two and you know teasing out the kind of anxieties that they create. Well, as far as the juxtaposition goes, the uh, this is a, this is another story where I was uh, I wanted to take a reprehensible character and and find the humanity in him. Um, I think as a society, it's really easy for us to to make villains out of people, and and some people make it easy for us to do that with them. And this is one of those guys that does that. You know, this is a kid who's getting seduced by the white supremacy movement, and so you know he's a his his home life, which is the more bizarre relationship, his his relationship with his with his mother, is kind of the uh, the incubator for for all this. You know, it's a really it's a kind of grotesque. Uh, Relationship in which his mother is literally consuming herself, and he's kind of he's kind of uh, an accomplice to that. He's got no choice. He's a kid, and um, and it's. I guess what I wanted to do with that story was show how somebody can be so bent out of shape by the uh, by the different ways love starts to manifest. You know, you know the way it can kind of twist into something unnatural, even in the family setting, or maybe even especially in a family setting. And you know, when you when a kid grows up in a situation like that, he uh, he comes out of it, um, you know, spiritually disfigured, and and he's trying to find this kid anyway is trying to find something that uh, something something normal, something he can latch onto to kind of pull him out of this, and he finds it I think in two ways, and in, in the, with the white supremacy group, you know, they're they they're conveniently offering him scapegoats for all those things. That you can't, that you're angry at, that you can't, you know, you can't codify them in any way. So they say, well, let's we can blame these people here. These people are the why are why your life sucks, and that's an easy thing to kind of uh, be charmed by. Um, and he's also uh, charmed by the uh, the girl who's part of that movement. And this is the relationship that he thinks is normal, that he wants to be normal, because he desperately wants that for himself. And you know, it turns out to be a little bit different than what he thought it was. It was all. It was all toward the point of it's finding out. It was all toward the, toward the point of, of taking a character who who we easily think of as being as being bad, and finding the humanity in him, finding the place where we can recognize something of ourselves, even if we can't recognize you know, where he went. That's such an interesting uh, approach, you know. And and I hadn't thought about your stories in, in that manner before, but that that makes that kind of ties them together for me because I think that, you know, the, 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 there are monsters in every story. There are two monsters in every story. <laughs> and there's the, there are the human ones and the inhuman ones. But I do like, I have to say, I, I do really like that you always and reliably uh, deliver us real monsters in your stories. I mean, you don't take, there's always uh, a, an edge of the fanta- actual fantastic in there, and you don't cop out and give us, uh, you know, just so-called, you know, uh, human monsters. And I'm thinking uh, Hannibal Lecter type stuff, which I think, you know, that's kind of to me is kind of a cop out. You know, the uh, the other uh, story of a young man I really like was Some Bleached, which uh, reminded me in some ways of something that Richard Matheson said when I talked to him because it's a little bit like his story uh, Blood Sun where a young, a young boy becomes fascinated with a vampire bat that he sees at a, at a pet at a zoo, a local zoo. 
and keeps going there and letting it drink his blood until he dies. Because uh, what's it, what's it called? Blood called Sun. Blood Sun. That sounds terrific. <laughs> it's really, really creepy. And, but when I talked with Matheson, one of the things he said was that he really always tried to make uh, his monsters real, like they could really exist. And I think that's something yeah. you really do, and you do that extremely well with Sunbleached, and it's an absolutely fabulous take, a monstrous take on, on the vampire uh, trope, which I think is so overworked, and you managed to wring something new out of it. That was that was kind of a that was kind of a challenge to write. Um, you know, Alan Batlow asked me to submit the story to who to Teeth. You know, that she's doing with Terry Winley, and um, you know, it was a vampire anthology. And my first thought was, oh, how can I possibly care about a vampire anymore? Um, but I thought about it, and uh, I remember when I was a kid, I was just you know scared to death by vampires. They were the most terrifying things I could think of, and. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to kind of honor that memory of them and, uh, and kind of kind of reach back and reclaim, you know, what they were to me as opposed to what they are, or what they kind of have become in recent years. And um, and I was also thinking that, you know, if uh, I've got a daughter myself, she's, she's 13 now, she's a little bit younger then, of course, but um, she was reading in, in a lot of YA fiction and frustrated by a lot of it. And uh, some of it she found to be a little condescending. You know, kids, I think, are smarter and a little more, a little more uh, savvy than uh, they're often given credit for. And so I was trying to imagine myself, I was thinking about that, I was trying to imagine myself coming to a book like this as a kid, and what would I want? And I would want, I would want something scary. I would want something that was kind of uncompromising. And so I just thought, you know, don't think of it as a YA story, even though the book was marketed as YA, just write a vampire story. Try to write a scary one to you if it works. And um, anyway, that one, I, I, so I gave myself a lot of uh, a lot of internal challenges. I wanted to write it in sunlight. You know, I wanted to write it in uh, where the vampire is completely at a disadvantage and see how it works. And I just tried to make it interesting and make it fun for myself. And um, I was surprised to be pretty pleased with it when it was done. You know, you do a good job of working with uh, dogs. Uh, the the story of the crevasse is just devastating. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I'd like you to just talk about uh, that story. It's also a, a, a wonderful, um, you know, there, you do a great job, too, of, of using mystery in your stories. You never tell us everything about anything. And I think that that... Give, lends your stories a lot of power and, and it's not like you're holding back it's just like uh, we don't need to know and it's something's moved by too fast I'm a big believer in, in not over explaining things and, and not telling and, that, and, and I'm, I'm very comfortable with mystery and stories when I read them and when I write them um, I like it I don't want to know all the answers and I don't think that we should know all the answers and the characters certainly don't and if the characters don't why should the reader and um and even as a reader myself, I sometimes get get frustrated when I feel like I'm being told too much. Um, with the crevasse, it's a, uh, it's I've got to give my uh, my collaborator on that one, Dale Bailey. He he gets the credit for the dogs. Uh, that was that was a section that he wrote, and um, so he gets the credit for it and the blame for killing the dog. <laughs> but um, but yeah, with the crevasse, it was I think it was especially it was important to both of us that. Uh, that nothing be explained in that one. Um, 
partly because it's a little bit, uh, that's kind of what the Lovecraftian ethos is, is sort of based on. Uh, but more, more importantly, because it was just, it would be totally inappropriate to the story. The entire point of that story was, was, uh, was the confrontation with the inexplicable and, um, and, and, and the way it kind of represented uh, you know, his own struggle to deal with death, the death of his wife. And uh, the, the, again, the way you can't answer that, the way either you don't get a justification or an explanation for it, it's a thing you must accommodate in your life or, or fail to. And um, yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting one to write. Uh, Dale and I wrote that in about two days. Wow. <laughs> uh, we... And we wrote it. We wrote it concurrently. Uh, Dale, he and I had both been asked to submit to an anthology, another one by Alan Dallow called uh, called uh, Oh Lovecraft Unbound. And the deadline was approaching very quickly, and neither of us had anything to show for it. I was over at his house, and he said, "Well, why don't we just write one together? We've got a, we've got a couple of days. Let's just do it." I said, "Okay." And we wrote it concurrently. We we kind of uh, and this is not typically how I work at all. It's very atypical, but. Um, we talked about what two scenes would be hap- would be happening in in concession in, in you know consecutively, and we'd each write them. He'd write his, and I'd write one at the same time. And then we'd should, we'd compare them and tweak what needed to be tweaked to, so they could they would interact with each other. And uh, yeah, it was a very fast write. It reads very seamlessly. You guys are are great collaborators, and you know you talked about the unknown in that one. I thought that popped up so well in North American Lake Monsters, uh, the the title story for the collection, which gives us uh, you know a, a, a nice long introduction to a certain degree, where we get to know a man who's you know been in prison. He's <clears throat> just meeting his daughter for the first time, and everything's the relationship is really you know obviously screwed up. It's a very intense. A story of characterization, and then you bring in this this giant, or literally a giant mystery. And I think it, that you do such a good job of keeping everything mysterious for us. And, and the ending, I think, is really, really nice. Uh, it kind of like uh, launches us off into this gooey future. Yeah. Well, thank you. The um, that was that you know that was that was a, another example of. of, of Finding someone's humanity, you know, that those uh, this guy who was just full of anger and rage, and 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 couldn't couldn't find a way to uh, to love his family, um, despite his very much wanting to, and um, and of course, you know, himself as well, and and yeah, that monster, you know, knowing any and knowing any more about that monster would be would be would be extraneous you know it's uh the point of it is only is its existence and uh and the different ways that the two characters react to it and um yeah it's uh i i don't know what to say about that one but uh well you know uh speaking of monsters your the monsters of heaven your award-winning story is also a, a fabulous spin on angels that at, which are you know becoming more popular as uh, characters in fantastic fiction, but what you do is very Nathan Ballingrude in, in terms of turning them into uh, fodder for uh, something gritty, realistic, and and dis- 
disturbing in a way that's kind of hard to explain, but is nonetheless, you finish the story and go, ay, 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 I, <laughs> I got to watch Happy Days for a day or two. <laughs> the, um, yeah, and that's 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 a story which uh, which you know is about side characters again. Um, you know, something 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 big is happening in the world. It's apparently happening all over the place. It's on the news. Um, I think, and around the beginning of the story, I, I I give a name to the event and suggest that later on much will come of it. But it's none none of that's even the point. It's just this, these two people who are who are background characters in this large story. And, and what happens to them because of it and what they see. And um, that was a, uh, you know, to me that was about, I, I, I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of um, of just the different ways the love manifests and how it can be just as kind of uh, damaging and warping as it can be, um, as it can be uplifting or, 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 or as it can save somebody. And, it seems to me that that's a story that, as depressing as you know as as it is, it seems to me that's a story with a happy ending, because they find a way to save themselves, but they have to do something horrible to do that, and um, and they got to do something that's that's just, in a way, sort of unforgivable. But it's but it's it's what must be done. It's what has to be done. Yeah, if if you're going to live, you have to do this. If you're going to succeed. Or in, in in continuing to to exist, this is what you have to do. The way station, I think, is really has a, a fabulously and very intensely uh, psychedelic and surreal feel to it. I mean, it's just like somebody popping you a psychedelic drug and you don't know that it's happened, and all of a sudden you're just going, "Oh my God, what has happened to the world?" <laughs> I wasn't sure that one was going to work. You know, I, I finished that one and sent it out. And I was like, man, I don't know. I don't know if this one works or not. I mean, it, I, enough people tell me that it does that I'll, that I, I'll take their word for it. Um, I'm happy with it, but it's also, you know, that's kind of like a, uh, that was kind of like a farewell to New Orleans sort of story for me. I left New Orleans about a month before the storm hit, before Katrina hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt very badly about not being there, which I know was kind of silly, but I felt it nevertheless. And, uh, and, you know, I think I, like many people who spent a lot of time there, uh, felt haunted by it for a long time. And that was just sort of a sort of a way to to honor that, to expunge it, and to go back there, you know, one more time. And the uh, the character uh, was based on a guy who, who uh, used to come into the bar where I worked all the time, and uh, much beloved by everybody. And uh, he's, he passed away before, before I moved away, before the storm hit, but... but uh, but I wanted to write something for him, too. It's really quite beautiful, and, and I think that this emphasizes another or one of the strengths of your stories is your ability to conceive, um, you know, in a world where we're cluttered with speculative fiction and, and fanta- fantastic fiction, and everybody's throwing so many ideas out there. It's, you know, refreshing to see somebody who comes up with stuff that seems, when you read it, Every time seems utterly original, even when you know whether it's your sun-bleached vampire or your North American lake monster, the wild acres. I mean, any of those uh, critters in those stories, and any of the the aspects of the supernatural, all seem really 
unique and entertaining, and and there there are it's it's really uh, fun to read. Well, I'm, uh, thank you. I'm real glad to hear you say that. I mean, it's it's interesting to hear it too because uh, when I write them, they don't feel original at all. They feel they feel very. I don't know. They feel very old. I feel like, okay, I'm writing a vampire story, and now I'm writing a werewolf story. And while I try to do things that are kind of refresh them, they don't feel like they're original to me. Because, man, maybe this is because when I start the stories, as you know, as we were talking about earlier, I start with characters, and and the fantastic element is there only to service the story about a character, and it's it's however that element can best be used that I try to use it, and whether it's so its, it's manifestation is, is entirely contingent upon 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 fleshing out this this, this person's story and, and making it making it resonate, making it make sense, and um, that's all. You know, that stuff is, is is secondary. You know, the fantastic is there because I love it. It's a it's a uh, it's you know the constellations of genre are are they're something that I care about a lot as a, as a as a reader and a writer, and so I put it in there just to find the joy in it. Uh, you talked a little bit about Raymond Carver and Richard Ford. I I. W- these stories would seem perfectly natural <clears throat> and fit right in with their work, despite the inclusion of the fantastic. And I think what you said is really critical for people who are working in the genre, that the fantastic is there to service the character. And with that kind of approach, that's why I think your stories seem so devastating. I mean, because the the char- you've got these characters who are... Um, they're also very realistic, very American characters. I mean, you can read this story and get a good picture of what America is like now, and not a happy place. <laughs> <laughs> Even for the 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 good husband at the end of this book, which is, I mean, I suppose in some ways that arguably you would consider that a uh, zombie story, but what. I would consider it is just the ten kinds of creepy um, family-oriented, you know, just a family gone deeply wrong. You know, the family version of sour, sour milk. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I did not think of zombies at all when I was writing it, but I've seen it referred to in that context a couple times since then. And in, in retrospect, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess so. It makes sense. But no, I wasn't thinking of that at all either. But that was another story where it's, you know, just how it was fascinated by how love becomes grotesque and how, and just because it's grotesque doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't still beautiful or that it isn't still worthy. It's just, it's just strange. And, uh, and, uh, you know, this guy's complicated relationship with his wife and her depression I'll is say. something he can't figure out. You know, I, you know, the title, someone, you know, I, when I first mentioned to someone I was going to use that title, they were like, well, that's, people are going to know immediately that it's going to be an ironic title. And I was like, well, it's not necessarily ironic. He's trying very hard to be a good husband. He wants to be. Uh, and uh, I just thought it was a good title. I thought it was, it added, it, for me, the ty- that particular title added a certain kind of uh, tension factor or something just, made it a little bit creepier and and because yes I could see the the striving to be good now uh I've read somewhere that you're working on a novel about Mars T- tell us a little bit about that <laughs> yeah the uh, it's 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 very different in tone from uh from these stories and um so I'm not sure you know 
Is it a science fiction novel? I mean, presumably, but I, in I'm just curious. Can you tell? I don't what, think what it's a science fiction um, because okay. it's because it's outlandish. It, it, it takes place in 1930, and so it's it's more science fantasy, I guess. There's no there's no gra- scientific grounding for anything in there. In the in the novel, um, people have been starting to to move to Mars um, earlier on in the century, and there had been a serious effort at colonization around 1920 or so. And it's told from the point of view of a um, of a girl. I wrote kind of writing this with my daughter in mind, so it's something that I write that she can read. Um, although I don't think of it as YA at all. But um, it's a uh, what the conceit to the story is that uh, communication with home with Earth is just stops kind of abruptly, and nobody knows why. And so the rest of the story is about this girl and her dad. Uh, her mom had gone back to Earth just before this cessation and communication happens, so her mom's gone home, and they don't know what happened to her either. And it's just about these people trying to uh, trying to cope with this new reality, you know, trying to understand what this means for them and and uh, deal with the kind of society that's reacting to this sudden break from from everything that they knew before and, uh, and make life new again. I've been speaking with Nathan Ballingrud. His new short story collection is North American Lake Monsters. Thank you for joining me, Nathan. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.